there's something missing when something comes solely from a machine. But once a hand gets involved to lacquer it or polish it or sand it or shape it, all of a sudden there's an imperfection introduced to that perfect shell. Some weaknesses, some flaws, all of a sudden become the strengths. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to Bradley L. Bowers. His work spans interior design, furniture, product and lighting, wallpaper and textiles, as well as new media art installations and bespoke pieces for fashion brands, art institutions, and private clients. His New Orleans-based namesake design studio is dedicated to blending the worlds of fashion, furniture, and culture. He does this through exploring the dynamic overlap of material research, advanced technology, and artisanal craftsmanship, a practice he calls Technocraft. Prior to founding his studio in 2012, he studied at Savannah College of Art and Design, earning his bachelor's in industrial design and his master's in furniture design. He's been featured in international design publications like Abitare, Interior Design Magazine, Architectural Digest, The New York Times, El Decor, and Design Milk. His awards include Best Contemporary Designer, Design Miami 2021, Interior Design, Best of the Year 2022, and Hip Award Neocon 2022. And this year in 2023, you may have seen his work in the Crossroads exhibit at ICFF or as part of Hayworth's Design Lab, or maybe you clocked him in the wallpaper USA 300, their guide to creative America. In any case, keep an eye out. He's definitely one to watch. As you'll hear, he likes to keep things interesting, always pulling at the threads of his curiosity and tuning his antenna to the wisdom of the people and the world around him. And his generosity of spirit is our game. Here's Bradley. My name is Bradley L. Bowers. I am based out of and live in New Orleans, Louisiana. And my design practice endeavors to create objects that push the envelopes of technology and craftsmanship. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I always really like to know how you got to be who you are now. So can you take me back to where you grew up and maybe something about your family dynamic and hometown and the things that captured your imagination as a kid? I'm glad you asked that because I oftentimes tell people about the origins of all of this. But for me, my earliest memory of being intrigued by the creative arts was with my cousin, Jeremy, who was an amazing drawer. He would do. Uh, a whole a ream of printer paper, and he would just draw on every single page and created his own comics, his own comic characters. 
And I would go over to my aunt's house and watch him do this. And so it made me want to learn how to draw. And so I got all of the little how-to books that used to come out that would say how to draw Marvel superheroes or how to draw Spider-Man or Wonder Woman. And so I would just sit down every day after school and try to recreate these characters that I saw Jeremy creating, except he was making his original. I was copying some pre-existing thing. And then one day I remember being over at his house and he was hanging out with some of his friends. And Jeremy was older than me by maybe five years, five or six years. He was hanging out with his friends and they were talking about what they wanted to do after they graduated high school. And they said, we want to go to SCAD. And so I lived in Atlanta at the time and SCAD was in Savannah. And my mother's side of the family is all from Savannah. And so as a kid, I just clocked that. I just locked it away in the back of my mind. I couldn't have been older than nine or 10. So SCAD and, and college, none of those things even made sense to me. And so as the years passed, I would get involved in little things here and there that most kids do. Go into a camp where you make clay pots, coil building method. Or you would have a summer camp where you just painted flowers or something. So I would just do these things that was normal for a kid to do. And then as I got into high school, my schooling was difficult because I didn't really enjoy being in public school. I didn't like being in school at all. And my mind was fixed on just getting things done. But teachers want you to do things repetitively. I want you to do the Pythagorean theorem 12 times. And my thought process was, I've shown you I can do it once. So why do I need to do it 11 more times? So needless to say, teachers didn't <laughs> enjoy me thoroughly in their classes. And so it got to the point where the only teachers who would take me were the art teachers. So you were outspoken then. You were, you were rebelling a little. Yeah, I, I was outspoken, rambunctious, and there were actually two classrooms that I was always, three, I was always excited about, geometry, literature, and art. And oddly enough, I use all of those things to this day on a five times a day basis. And so I was very outspoken and I would make my thoughts be known. And some teachers were receptive and other teachers were just like, I'm just trying to get through the day, man. <laughs> like, can you just... Can you just cut me a break? <laughs> but the art teachers weren't that way. And there was one teacher in particular, Miss Bryant, who I always tell people, I swear to God, looked exactly like Paula Dean. And she was my ninth grade art teacher. And she taught me how to paint and draw with pastels. And I fell in love. And it was portrait painting and portrait drawing. Mm -hmm. And that got me. And so I, I slowly started just hanging out with her or hang out with anyone who was interested in the arts. And by this point, I had kind of forgotten about those sessions of sitting with Jeremy and drawing comic book characters. Maybe it was bubbling those things back up. Mm -hmm. And so as I was sitting there doing all of this, I was inadvertently building a portfolio. And so the next year, another counselor told me, she says, well, hey, Miss Gibson would like to have you in her art class. And she was the advanced art teacher. Ooh, you're getting recruited now. <laughs> exactly. So, and this was also one of the first times outside of my literature class that I was seeing recognition. I knew I was smart. That wasn't the issue, but there was no recognition happening in my math class. There was no recognition happening in social studies. But in art, people were saying, you're kind of good at this. And, and that felt nice. Mm-hmm. You know, can we just stop for a second and just dwell on the idea of recognition? Because I feel like 
We're often taught that we shouldn't even want it or need it, but it's really important in terms of encouraging Very. how we see ourselves. And when we find something that we're passionate about, that we're good at, if it sort of goes into a black hole and nobody responds to it, then it confuses our sense of self. Well, even beyond that, if it becomes a thing where it has to constantly come from you and you alone, not only does the talent have to come from you, not only does the tenacity have to come from you, but also the pat on the back has to come from you. And that's a lot to ask. That's a lot to ask of one person. And so I'm a huge believer in telling people that they're doing great. That doesn't mean I have to like their work, but I just get excited that people have the courage to wake up every day and keep going on any of these crazy paths that we seem to choose for ourselves. Yes. But yeah, so, so recognition meant a lot to me. And at the time, clearly, I didn't know that recognition was what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. But it told me that I fit, that there were some places that I could find comfort in. And that empowered me. But anyway, what ended up happening after that was we moved and we moved to a new area, Peachtree City, Georgia, which is about 45 minutes south of Atlanta. And I was playing tennis and it was the schools I had been going to pre this moment were 98% black. Okay. And this school that I was going to was 98% white. Aye, aye, aye. That's culture shock. A huge difference. But what I noticed was they had AP courses. They had extracurriculars that I hadn't even heard of. And so when I got to this school, the counselor there said, oh, you know what? We looked at your portfolio and we think you could be an AP art. And I had only known AP from my sister going to magnet programs because she's the smart one. And so she got into all of these AP courses. And I was like, oh, my God, that used to just be stuff Yasmin did. But now I can be an AP something. So I was enrolled in AP art and I continued building a portfolio. And it was that portfolio that got me accepted to SCAD on a painting scholarship. Can you tell me a little bit about, I can see how your creativity was starting to get recognized and developed, and I'm really grateful that that was happening for you. But can you tell me a little bit about what your life was like socially? And was this move, did it require a lot of like transitional skills on your part? And what did it mean for your family and your family dynamic? I've always been pretty easy with socializing. My mom used to tell me I could get dropped on a glacier and I'd have a good time. I don't have a hard time mixing in different social circles. Mm -hmm. So high school for me and middle school for me, the difficulty was never in socializing. The difficulty was always with authority. My peers and I, we we got on like thieves. (laughs) Yeah, if you needed me to do something that I didn't want to do, that was, it was going to be hell in high water. (laughs) No wonder you're self-employed now, yes? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So for me, going to this new school, Macintosh High School in Peachtree City, Georgia, going there was largely to do with my tennis career. I was playing juniors tennis and they had a really good academy in that neighborhood. And so Mm. we moved there. And also my grades were slipping and my mom wanted me to have a, a better chance of getting into college. And that required me to be in a space that would be a, maybe a bit more challenging. So I'm in this new school environment. And I'm, I'm really thankful for it because it also forced me to learn how to interact with people that I had not been interacting with before. And so I, I build this portfolio. I get this scholarship to go off the SCAD. And now I'm going to Savannah, which because my mother's side of the family is from there and my grandmother's family is from South Carolina, very near there. Although I was leaving to embark on a college education, I kind of didn't feel like I was 
a foreigner. It felt home-like in a way. Mm, mm -hmm. And so I arrived to Savannah and I did not leave for four and a half years. So for those four and a half years, I didn't see my family at all. And that was part due to right as I graduated, my mother and sister moved to New Orleans because my sister had gotten accepted to grad school in Tulane University. So she's in Louisiana about a month before Katrina hits. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. So my mother had been going back and forth for a few years. So by the time I left to go to college, most of the family was fully in Louisiana. And maybe two days before I left to go to school, we drove down from Atlanta and then my mom went straight to Louisiana. Katrina hit. Yeah. So, so there's always something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my sister stayed, my mom stayed, and they tried their best to make it work. And the reason I never left Savannah to go visit is because in my mind, I said, they have enough on their plate. Let's just get back on steady ground. And I'm in Savannah. I'll make this work. So for four and a half years, Bradley flew solo. How was that? I, I really got to know myself. I had a blast. I met some of the most amazing people in the world, people I still keep in touch with on a very intimate basis to this day. But most of all, I really found myself. And I'm so glad it was this place, this slow country little town. I've, I've, I really learned a lot. Well, I mean, both Savannah and New Orleans, where you are now, are really magical places. Mm -hmm. I mean, more so than other places. It's hard to explain what feels so dense in the air, but it feels spiritual. It's definitely a spiritual vibe, and it's spiritual beyond any type of religious aspect. It's something that every person feels. Right. There's a magic in the air. And it's as simple as if I walk to the coffee shop right now, I pass two goats in a little field, and then I might hear someone practicing their tuba on their porch just to go get a coffee. Oh, I love it. Or if it's later at night and I'm going to a bar, I'll hear frogs next to the railroad tracks doing whatever they're doing. There's so many little things that you can't categorize them as being influential or powerful on their own. But when you mix them all together, and when you're in a city that has such history, to the, the country and to cultures and to, especially to Black America. Mm -hmm. Both Savannah and New Orleans were so ingrained and braided into what it means to be Black in America. I couldn't help but be in these places and feel it and to be making the work that I make. I, I make very contemporary work, but I like being in these very traditional, in quotes, cities because they give me something to rub up against. They give me something to rebel against, which is something I need. I'm hearing that now. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're catching on to that. <laughs> I'm catching on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So quick clarifying question about tennis. Did you let it go when you went to college? Yes. Tennis, tennis fell by the wayside. Okay. Not because I wanted to, but because I recognized I'm here on a mission. Yasmin and my mom are here in New Orleans. They're making things work as best they can. As much as I'd love to, I'm not here for tennis. I'm here to get something and leave here with something. And so I played every now and again on the courts with friends, like intramurals maybe. But it was me uh, recognizing I had a new frontier in front of me. And I wanted to dedicate all of myself to exploring that. And I, and I, I had a professor once, I, I was an industrial design student for my undergraduate and she was a jewelry professor, but I took her class anyway. And I was walking to a lecture and she bumped into me on my way to the lecture outside at some fountain near one of the buildings. 
And she goes, where are you headed? And I go, oh, I'm, there's a, a fashion lecture that's about to happen over at so-and-so building. And she goes, gosh, I love you. You're going to milk this thing dry. And I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. She said, you're going to milk this thing dry. And it, that, was my, that was how I saw it. Why I'm in, I was in paradise. SCAD was a, a creative pair. Of course, I'm going to eat from every tree. Come on. <laughs> Man, your joy is contagious. I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, SCAD, you got both your bachelor's and your master's there, correct? Mm-hmm. First industrial design and then furniture design. And you have a lot of work experience that happened during the years while you were still in school. So I'm guessing there were internships and like jobs on the side, all kinds of work experience that was coming into it. Again, I have a problem. And I think most creatives who, who eat, live, breathe and, and love it. I like it so much that I've put myself in some very compromising positions <laughs> just to do it. Yeah. But in the moment, they didn't feel so compromising because I often tell people it's like fish in the water. If you ever pulled a fish to the side and told them that they could monetize breathing, they'd go, wait, I don't know. I kind of just do it. And I go, well, yeah, but breathing underwater, that's pretty special. A lot of animals don't know how to do that. And they go, yeah, but I mean, I just wake up and it kind of happens. And so for me, I just wake up and I kind of just enjoy doing it to the point where at one point I was enrolled in online classes, virtually, working for Ralph Lauren in New York and completing an art residency in New Jersey, in Jersey City, all at the same time. And the only reason I did the online classes, hopefully nobody at SCAD hears this, is so that I could get the financial aid in order for me to keep living in New York, because Ralph Lauren, hopefully nobody from Ralph Lauren hears this, was only paying $10 an hour. And so I was, again, I put myself in some compromising spots but I just loved it so much. And I learned so much from all of those experiences, but it was just, I can't get enough of it to the point where sometimes I should have gotten enough of it and I need to take a break, but I don't know how. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm hearing is you're incredibly resourceful and you're a sponge and you were appreciating all of the experience in all of those different situations. So you were absorbing it and knowing that you'd be using it to apply it later in life. I don't think I knew I was going to be applying it later. For me, it was more just being in it. If you had put me in Istanbul instead of Manhattan, I would just be in it. And maybe subconsciously, I know that there was a way it could come back to be helpful later. But in the moment, I was just over the moon that I was working at Ralph Lauren. And every now and again, I would see Ralph walk through the halls and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just saw the OG, the master of brand, the lifestyle. He just walked by me. And so for me, that was the joy of it. It wasn't until maybe a year later where I was like, oh, this is kind of similar to how I had to communicate with factories in Hong Kong when I was at this thing. The, the lessons came later. The moments, I was just mouth open, excited. <laughs> Oh, don't ever lose that, Bradley. <laughs> I don't think I could if I tried. I really, I've tried. Okay. I've definitely tried. <laughs> well, well, one good way to lose it, though, is to really burn yourself out, which sounds like might be an occupational hazard of yours if you're not careful. Well, for me, burnout is another thing that I, I suffer from, but don't at the same time. I don't need much to recharge. These last two years have really allowed me to understand that more but also to understand that 
it is an actual hazard. And when the pandemic hit and everyone was bugging out and freaking out over work from home, I was like, wait a minute, this is the only way I've known how to operate. This is problematic. <laughs> and then, wait, this is, this is dangerous? And then I realized, I mean, on top of that, my grandmother, who was the light of my life, she passed the first year of COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, and, and, I, and I didn't know at the time how heavy that was on me. I knew it was heavy, but I didn't know how heavy. And so it took some years for that to bubble up to the surface and, and cause problems. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, the world will keep spinning. Clients can freak out if they want to. Gallerists can freak out if they want to. But Bradley's got to take care of Bradley. And if that means taking a break for three weeks or a month or three months, then I'm going to do it. Because for years, for more than a decade, I've done somersaults and cartwheels and bent over backwards to make this career joyous for myself. I can take a little break. And so that this, I only learned that these past few years. Prior to this, I was on a plane every other week or doing this. And, but at the time, it didn't, I wasn't drained. I wasn't being burnt out because you, in the moment, you're not burnt out. Burnout is something that's cumulative. When you're in it, it's just a little pinprick here and there. At the end of it, you realize how much blood you've lost. It, it took me some time to be okay with taking a break and letting breaks not mean failure or weakness. And I think that might've been part of why I resisted them so much. Is there any part of you that was suppressing things like grief or really uncomfortable feelings and traumatic feelings and sort of medicating it with work and the excitement of the experiences that were all in front of you? I, I mean, maybe, I don't know. That's something I think maybe in 10 more years or so I'll be, I'll be able to have perspective on. When I worked at Procter & Gamble, the thing they kept saying was work-life balance. And I was like, yeah, but my work is life. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in some of my best friends in the entire world, I never would have met if it wasn't for the creative arts. Some of the most amazing clients have become best friends. And so for me, I have a hard time having a conversation with a person if there isn't some sort of creative or artistic leaning that they have doesn't mean they need to be Picasso, but it's that's typically where I'm able to latch on to a person and find some mode of understanding. Mm -hmm. So the work was never really a salve or a medication. It was actually the excitement. It was the drug. Right. Okay. And did you eventually give yourself the space and the time to properly grieve your grandmother? I think so. But then also no, because someone that big, someone that powerful. Grandmothers are the, are the most magical creatures on earth. I mean, maybe, maybe unicorns are right below them. <laughs> there's, there's no way you could ever fully grieve that. The thing that was most powerful about it is the night before she passed, I was sitting with her because that was the other reason I moved to New Orleans. Right after I finished school, my mom was taking care of my grandmother who had dementia and Alzheimer's, and that's the reason she passed. My sister had gotten a job with the EPA. So she had to go up to D.C. And my job, luckily, allowed me to be almost anywhere in the world. And at the time, I was in New York working on a project, La Noche, which is this nightclub that I designed that's doing really well. Yay! But I realized, well, I can move to New Orleans and still work on this project. As long as they have an airport, I can be anywhere. And so I moved here and I started helping my mother take care of my grandmother. And we all live in the same house. And so the night before she passed away... I was sitting with her 
talking to her. But at that point, she was nonverbal and just was in the room present. But we had a moment. And the power of that, I think, allowed me to not make it about me, but then also to recognize that she's always going to be there. Always, always, always. So I think when someone is that powerful, it's impossible to say, I've finished my grieving. So long as I'm alive, there'll still be some part of me that longs for her to still be here. So no, I don't think I finished the grieving process, but I think I'm, I'm at peace with her being at peace. Oh, wait, by the way, I completely forgot this whole part of it. I don't know how I skipped this. As a kid, pre-Jeremy, my grandmother built, designed, and upholstered furniture. I completely forgot that part. How did I leave it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, how did I leave that out? <laughs> you absorbed it through osmosis, through your early childhood experiences. Well, it was in her basement. Her basement in, in Clemson, South Carolina, I would sit and she would be sewing sheets or she would be sewing slips for chairs. But yes, years ago, I never would have imagined that I'd be doing what she did. And so that's what I mean by it. She's always in there. She's Dorothy is always a part of me. And so, yeah, so I, I got it from her and I honed my craft in Savannah, which is where she lived for quite some time. So, yeah, it's all it's all tied up together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love this multi-generational picture you're painting for me. And I also love Dorothy. <laughs> through hearing oh, no, she's her. the best. The absolute yeah, best. Yeah, I can tell through the word choices you're using and the sound of your the tone of your voice. I can feel the love for her. And I do believe you're right. You'll always sort of feel her absence, but you'll also always feel her presence because her energy is just transformed. It's just not embodied anymore, but it's still there. Exactly. And because it's not embodied, it's even more potent. And I think, I mean, that's also with design. Mm -hmm. When a design concept or when a design language transcends, it's almost like a Zaha Hadid or a Frank Gehry or a Tadawando. When they have such a language. It doesn't have to be in any particular objective or objectified form. All of a sudden, it becomes very powerful. It almost becomes a philosophy or, or a religion of some sort, because it can take on any shape it wants to. And that's when I think stuff gets really exciting. Yeah, I'm with you there. So carry me. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Whenever I'm in a room with web professionals, I hear a lot of shop talk about Wix Studio. Wix Studio is beloved by both designers and developers because it gives them the quality and flexibility to do exceptional work efficiently. So 
They can do what they do best without the grind and deliver projects on time. Designers love Wix Studio because it combines pure web design with maximum productivity. With intuitive layout tools, designers can create unique layouts with an intuitive grid that allows them to add emphasis and standout style. And they can save entire custom site templates, text themes, color palettes, and components to use them time and again. And developers love Wix Studio because it gives them the flexibility and speed they need to take a wide range of projects end-to-end with code-level control over the front-end and back-end. Devs can either use Wix-made or third-party APIs. Plus, they can work online in a VS code-based IDE or code locally and push changes via GitHub. I may not be an expert in website creation, but I do know a lot about how to design and build, and there is nothing more exciting to the creative process than a well-stocked toolkit that helps me do my best work. To learn more, go to Wix Studio or simply click on the Clever Resources link in the description. Through some of the, I mean, you've had a very exciting last couple of years, but before we get up to present day, I would like to hear about your sort of early career trajectory. And it sounds like you moved to New Orleans very shortly after graduation. Yes. Okay. It looks like the Satellite show in Milan was also a kind of big kickoff to your career. Is that, does that line up? That was one of those moments where it was, again, it was a fish in the water, swimming and breathing through gills and just going, this is what I do. I had no concept of how important, how influential and how mega that was. And if I did, I don't think it would have affected me in a negative way. It probably would have given me a little bit of pause, but... That happened because I was working on my thesis and a friend of mine who I hadn't been speaking to in a while, we had a little bit of a falling out, about a year of no talking, but he approached me and he said, uh, hey, I know you're working on your thesis and I've got this opportunity to show at the Satellite in April, but I don't have enough work. Would you want to go in together and show? And I said, well, Alejandro, uh, let me think about it, but I don't have any money. So I know this is going to cost something. And so I walked away and I thought about it. But then I remember that when I was an industrial design student, SCAD had a policy that said, if you get accepted into a competition, we'll pay half the competition entry fee. And so I said, well, this isn't exactly a competition, but maybe let's see what they'll do. And this was another one of those moments where I did something I had no business doing. And if I knew better, I probably wouldn't have. But I literally called the president of the university, Paula Wallace. And I said, hey, Paula, I just wanted to let you know that two students, myself and Alejandro Figueredo, we have the opportunity to show at the Satellite in April. And this at this point, it was maybe October of 2011. And the Satellite is April of 2012. I go, we have this opportunity. However, we have no idea how to ship work overseas and go through all the union requirements, but I know SCAD does this all the time, would you be able to help us figure out this part of the process? And I genuinely just needed help figuring that out. Mm -hmm. Because if the furniture department could cover half the fee, then we could could pull this thing off. Mm -hmm. Paula Wallace, who is forever one of my guardian angels, I love her to the the moon and beyond, responded and she said, so-and-so person will be in touch with you shortly. And they got in touch with me. And this person was the like liaison to the president's office or something. And she had a meeting with myself and Alejandro. 
by the end of the meeting, they said, okay, we've got you covered. They paid for us to go. They paid for the hotel. They paid for the flight. They arranged us to meet the uh, ambassador from Italy to America. They got us a PR representative so that if anyone wanted to talk to, she did all of that for us. Amazing. And that changed my entire world. Wow. I mean, it's a two-way street, right? You're, you're a talented and hungry student, and she clearly recognized that. And it, it's not that it, it looks bad on SCAD to have two star students out there showing, <laughs> <Exactly>. you know? <laughs> like it's, but at the same time, she probably really recognized this boost, you can turbocharge it by just making it like really possible for the students. And so she put some rocket fuel in really what otherwise would have been a train trip. And that's incredible. That's really generous. Well, I had the, another moment that, and I was just sitting with a young designer here in New Orleans yesterday. We got coffee. He's about to leave to go to London. And I was like, well, let me give you some unsolicited advice. <laughs> <laughs> And one of the stories I told him was from that same trip, there was this bus driver, Miss Wilson at SCAD, who would pick me up from the dorms and take me to the class building, which for industrial design and furniture students was way, way, way out, much farther beyond the dormitories, at least at that time. And Miss Wilson picked me up and she was dropping me off. And I was leaving to Italy the next day. And I said, Miss Wilson, you're, not, you're probably not going to see me for a little while because I'm about to go show my thesis in Milan. And she goes, oh, that's fantastic. And I say, well, hopefully I come back with some good news. And I promise you, I remember this ever since that day. She looked at me and she said, baby, it's already good news. And I've, oh. I'm, that, yeah, that is, that always gets me. And I think that's the excitement that I have for this career. All of these accolades that are coming now that weren't coming years ago when I started, they aren't really the boost behind it. The good part is that I'm just in it. That's the fun. That's the good news. And so, but I remember Miss Wilson, and it's funny because I just saw her earlier this year. I went back to Savannah to visit and she was driving one of the buses that I happened to get on. And I go, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> you have a lot of wise people you interface with and you you know how to keep those nuggets of wisdom with you and, and let them continue to fuel you. But they're everywhere. Yeah, I, I think that's the funny. It's that it's they're like little Yodas all throughout the, <laughs> the lady on the corner. That's 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 a little Yoda. Actually, there is a I was sitting at a bar once late night here in New Orleans. And there was this random lady that I was sitting next to. She didn't know me. I didn't know her. But we got to talking and she said, you know what? I'm learning how to forgive myself for doing the things that I know I'm going to do. And I was like, oh, come on. You can't just be saying heavy stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's so powerful. That's a drop. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I've embodied that. I said, you know what? I know I'm going to make mistakes. That's okay. I'm going to allow, I'm afraid, I'm going to forgive myself for doing the things that I know I'm going to do. You know, what's so powerful about that too, is because it's hard enough to learn how to forgive ourselves for our past mistakes, mm -hmm. but to give ourselves forgiveness for our future mistakes, just really. Bingo. It's the license it, it gives you. Well, it's license to be human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to do that too. I'm learning right? how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew this lady's name, but yeah, it was a random night at a random bar. This happened in New Orleans? Yes, this is, that's the other thing. In New Orleans, I've met some of the most magical, if no one else was there to witness it, they wouldn't believe me. I have these moments all the time. I mean, I, mean, I have them in general in my life, but 
specifically in this city, it almost seems like it is a repository for fantastical creatures that happen to be in human form. I mean, so it's sometimes they're weirdos and other times they're they're sages, but and sometimes they're a little bit of both. Yeah. But yeah, it's it, it's an interesting city. So you've been thriving in your creative practice. When would you say you went from being a student to being a professional? Was that around 2012, 2013? You know, that's a really beautiful question because one of the other things I did that I had no business doing at the time, Susan Sinese was the editor-in-chief of Metropolis Magazine. And I had the, the luxury and the privilege of meeting Susan. In 2011, she came to SCAD a part of some furniture conference. And the chair of my department knew Susan from New York when he was there. And he introduced us. And Susan uh, and I were talking. And she says, well, do you have a business card? And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't have a business card. And she goes, you should always have a business card. And I said, well, Susan, the next time I see you, I'm going to have a business card. And then, sure enough, there was another event in Savannah. And Susan was moderating it. And I heard through the grapevine that she was in town and that the thing was happening at so-and-so building. And I didn't have tickets to it, but I figured I've snuck into enough stuff. I figured I could figure that one out. <laughs> and I had business cards. And I went to the thing. Luckily enough, I knew the girl working the front desk. And I said, well, you just, I just want to slip in. And she goes, go ahead, go for it. And so I slipped in and I, and luckily they had just taken a break and Susan was getting some food and I walked up to her and I go, hi, Susan, my name is Bradley. You probably don't remember me. And she goes, yes, I do. You're that hot shot designer guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I don't know where that came from, but sure. I said, well, the last time I saw you, I did not have a business card. And I told you the next time I saw you, I would. And so I handed her my business card with two hands like I learned how to do in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And you would have thought I'd handed her a million dollars. She was so excited. She goes, oh my gosh, you don't know how much this means to me. And I'm a little confused at this point. And I'm like, what? She goes, to keep your word is so powerful. So that moment happened in 2011. Fast forward, I'm getting ready to leave to go to the Satalite. And I reach out to Susan because, again, I was much bolder than I am now. And I'm going to try to lean back into that bold Bradley, if you can believe it. I reached out to her via email and I said, Susan, I'm about to go to the Satalite. And I think it would be great if Metropolis did some sort of coverage on what it means to transition from being a student to being a designer with a capital D. And she goes, oh, I love that idea. Do you want to write the article? Oh, my God. That is gutsy. So if you look up on Metropolis Magazine, I believe there are two credits for me. I've written for Metropolis. I can add that to, to my resume. And I said, well, if that's the case, I want to document the process, the behind the scenes. What is What are the, the guts of these shows like? And then how do you dust yourself off and make yourself presentable to, to the flocks of onlookers coming in? And so Susan took that gamble on me, but that was literally my transition. That was the beginning of it. 2012. I recognized that I was no longer going to be a student and I had to figure out how to be a designer with a capital D. And Susan Zanesi helped me do that. Not only is that a bit precocious, but in a beautiful way, it's also very astute. What's powerful about it is you didn't say like, just look at me, look at me. What you came to her with was actually a really good story pitch, which is Again, it's a win-win situation. So it's also a very astute way for you to be able to put your name out there and, and get a writing credit, but also be able to tell a story and have control over your own narrative. 
But the exchange is what's powerful is because you sort of instinctively understood, if I'm going to reach out to Susan, like what's a scenario that's good for both of us? Bingo. That's what people overlook so often. And I was just doing a panel yesterday. It was an alumni panel and some people were asking, well, how do you go about doing this and how do you network? And I said, well, look, when I graduated, there was no medical design in my portfolio. So maybe I shouldn't apply to any medical companies. Mm -hmm. If there are no sneakers in your portfolio, don't call Nike. And if you do call Nike with no sneakers in your portfolio, Nike looks at you and goes, okay, you clearly did not do any research on us. So you're clearly not that invested. I wouldn't approach Susan with something like that if I didn't think that was something up Susan's alley. If I were to say, Susan, let me write a story on the different colors that will be present at Design Week this year. She'd go, oh, that's not really what Metropolis does. And it would kind of be sour because she'd go, oh, I thought you got me. Dang it, Mm -hmm. you don't. (laughs) And so I, I think one of my strong suits is that I am very observant and I try to be as strategic as possible. But because I smile a lot and I laugh a lot, people think that I'm kind of just like, come easy, go easy, which I don't mind. Everybody's got their opinions. But yeah, I'm very thoughtful and considerate with how I approach people because it takes a lot. People risk a lot by just saying yes to you. It's a big gamble Mm -hmm. because no one knows what's going to happen. If that had been a flop of a story and Susan puts it in there under her watch, people go, what you doing? What's going on? So I take it very, very personal to do my homework and to make sure who I'm speaking to and how I'm speaking to them is doing everything possible to lead to a yes. That clearly has been a winning strategy for you because just hearkening back to what you just said about don't reach out to Nike if you have no sneakers in your portfolio, you've built a creative practice that is not about any sort of specific typology. Mm -hmm. And so at some point you started designing wallpaper when you didn't have any wallpaper in your portfolio. Exactly. That was a strategy too, because that was the pandemic was hitting and I was in front of my computer already. And a good girlfriend of mine, Jordan Graves, she's phenomenal. At the time she was getting her PhD, I hope she still is, in robotics at Georgia Tech. And she had shown me this robotic arm she had just programmed and it was drawing different line patterns. And I saw those line patterns and said, ooh, this would be really cool as a wallpaper. And I hate wallpaper because most of the designs are so kitschy and they're, it's daffodils and ponies. And, and I thought to myself, I can't be the only designer out here who wants something that has a bit more substance and that has a, it's a bit more art leaning than pictorial. And so I had luckily just finished designing the wallpaper collection for this uh, local design company called Eclectic Home. And after I finished doing it, they loved the pattern so much. And I said, well, who are you all working with for your wallpaper? And they said, oh, we're working with so-and-so company. I'll give you their contact info. And so they gave me the contact info and I reached out to them and I said, how does a designer go about making a collection with you all? And they said, oh, well, we're more of just a manufacturer. So you send us what you want us to print. Here are our prices and here's our lead time. I said, perfect. And so there was no minimum orders, none of that. So I sat for a good month and a half and I designed conservatively 60 to 70 patterns, if that few, Mm. and then different color options. And I kept playing with it and I would print it out at the Kinko's near here or the FedEx and I would play with it and I would tweak it. And it got to the point where I said, this actually might be pretty good. And so I started working with this company and they would print it for me. But then I realized there's a lot more to wallpaper than just printing it. 
And so again, a kind of a Susan Sinese moment, a Paula Wallace moment. I got a, a DM from Interior Design Magazine saying that Cindy Allen would love to do a Zoom chat with me. I said, sure, let's do it. And so as we were talking, Cindy and I hit it off as well. And we realized that we really liked each other and that she enjoyed my work. And I liked the mission that she was undertaking at Interior Design Magazine. And at the end of it, she made the fatal mistake of saying, if you need anything, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Cindy, I will. As soon as I I can think of something, I will. If you leave the door open a crack, I'm going to come through. (laughs) Well, you know what's funny about that? My grandmother used to tell me, she said, you got to get your foot in and then your (laughs) knee in. And then once you can get your hip in, you can throw that door wide open. (laughs) I love that. And so Cindy said, if you need anything, let me know. I had to get up the courage because, again, people think I'm much more bold. They think it just it's, it oozes out of me and I have to really psych myself up to do it. And so I hit her up and I said, Cindy, I've been working on this wallpaper collection and I sent her a PDF of the wallpaper patterns. And I said, however, it's a lot more work than I thought and I'm not representing it as best as I can. Do you know any companies that you think would be a good fit that could help me develop this and put it out to the world at large? And Cindy responded and she says, well, give me a little bit of time. But in the meantime, send me kind of like a portfolio of your work and some of your press. And she goes and make sure you include that press because Interior Design Magazine had carried a few clips of my wallpaper in their previous issue. She says, make sure you include that stuff from Interior Design Magazine. I said, okay, perfect. So I put that together. I sent it to her and she sent it back to me with some edits. And I made the edits and I sent it back to her. And she says, perfect. I have a few people in mind I'm going to send it to look to hear from me in a few weeks. And so three weeks pass and she hits me up and she says, I want to introduce you to Mary Beth Shaw over at Wolf Gordon. And I said, okay. So she says, will you be in New York anytime soon? And I go, oddly enough, La Noche, the nightclub that I designed, they're having an anniversary party, so I'll be there. This is when I think I get a little bit too in my head about universe and spiritual and all of this. It turns out that the offices for Wolf Gordon are directly above La Noche. And I go, well, come on, that can't be a coincidence because I'm going to be in this building and I have a meeting with this is too much. Oh, that is beautiful. The universe is conspiring on your behalf. And all of Manhattan, they had to be in the same little spot. Yeah. I just got goosebumps. That's for real. This is life. My life has just been me being able to recognize it and be glad and appreciative. But I get to the meeting with Mary Beth and Michael Laughlin, and who's the design director, and Mary Beth is the chief creative director. And we have a blast. Again, we get on like we've been friends for forever. And in one meeting, we picked all the patterns that we wanted to do. We released them at Neocon of that year, which would have been Neocon last year. And they swept all these award categories. Ah, I love it. And again, it was that recognition. That was the first time I'd, second time I'd won anything for design ever. Prior to that, it was at Design Miami for my paper lighting collection. But these were just things that I was already doing. That was Halo for the Future Perfect, by the way, just for our listeners. That is correct. So <laughs> Halo for the Future Perfect was the beginning of people recognizing. And then Chromalis was the next thing that I did with Wolf Gordon. But that literally stemmed from a thing nobody asked me to do. Nobody asked me to design wallpaper in my room, uh, in my little studio, on my little old computer. But I had a funny feeling... <laughs> that other people were tired to. And so it's that if you want to see it, do it. And so that's my motto most of the time. I love your initiative. 
I love your enthusiasm. And I love that you revealed that you have to psych yourself up to do these sort of bold moves. Oh, yes. I think people can relate to that. I'm much older than you, but I still have to psych myself up for that kind of thing. And you always will have to. That's the catch. It's Yeah. I, my senior project in undergrad was on the transformative quality that objects can have. And what it, what it stemmed from was athletes and superheroes. Because mm-hmm. I had the funny feeling growing up playing tennis, I knew that there was a moment when I stopped being Bradley and I became the opponent. And I thought to myself, Serena Williams is a world champion, but she's also an auntie. Is there a moment when Serena Williams stops being Auntie Serena and becomes one of the greatest tennis players to ever exist? And what happens? And I interviewed a ton of athletes. I interviewed the gold medalists from the Beijing Games in fencing, the silver medalists in the same games. I interviewed college wrestlers, college swimmers, professional swimmers, professional golfers. And every single one of them had a moment where in one way or another, they were psyching themselves up. And most of the time, the psyching themselves up had something to do with a physical thing. One guy said, he was a swimmer, he said, I had to put on my swimming goggles from high school. They were too small for my head, but it was that pressure that I felt around my eyes that let me know it was go time. And this guy has won medals left, right, and center. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and all of that really stemmed from me researching African masks and the transformative quality that putting a mask on in these ceremonies and these rituals has. It's a signal that now you got to do it. And mine is typically sending an email and I do it very aggressively. I send an email and I click send before I can doubt myself. And once I've done that, the mask has been drawn and I'm in it because <laughs> somebody's getting it and somebody's responding. So I'm, I'm in it now. I realized that even the greats, even the people that make it look so effortless, their hand was shaking five seconds before they walked on court. Actually, their hand is still shaking on court, but they're doing it. They're jumping in it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And I love that you were able to distill it down to something as what we often think of as mundane as an email. But if you ritualize it Mm -hmm. into a sort of moment where you're transforming from Bradley, Dorothy's grandson, into Bradley, the superhero designer. (laughs) (laughs) Your words, your words. (laughs) You're sportsifying it. You're like, okay, I got to get in like athlete mode with this. Yeah. And it's that moment where you've released it. Because I think that's the other part that's so, which is why I love sports so much. There was a wonderful moment. Ralph Nadal was playing some match at the French Open where he was king. Mm -hmm. And he lost the match in the uh, press conference room, they said, Rafa, what happened? And he goes, well, sometimes you do everything right and it still doesn't work. And I go, oh my gosh, yes. But what I got from that was him saying, I have to release myself from the outcome. All I can do is do my part and whatever happens on the receiving end, I accept it. If it's positive, wonderful. If it's negative, learn from it. And I send these emails, I send these messages, I shake hands, I go to these events, I make my work, and I put it out into the world, and I move on to the next thing. And if by some twist of fate, that ends up being something that people recognize or want to purchase, wonderful. If it doesn't, wonderful. That's not why I'm doing it. I enjoy when that happens. Of course. <laughs> that's not why it's, it's not why I'm doing it. And I think it's that release, just saying, I'm just going to jump. And whatever happens after the jump, 
Well, let's let's see. Yeah. No, I think I think that's very wise and I think that's going to help you have a very sustainable long-term career. A lot of wise people talk about detachment from outcome. I think the other piece of it that we it's so hard to digest that we forget is sometimes the experiences that feel negative in the moment or are not the outcome we wanted mm-hmm. actually end up having a kind of benefit that we just have to like process the experience more deeply in order to extract the benefit. And also you end up thinking to yourself, like I've been in some spots where I kept chasing after something that was clearly a a no. Mm -hmm. And I I got on the other side of it and I go, oh, this was a disaster. (laughs) This was an absolute (laughs) wreck. But, and I also actually in the same conference that I was in yesterday, someone had made the comment of don't chase bad money. And I said, ooh, I can't co-sign that. Because sometimes you have to. And Aretha Franklin, in one of her songs, she says, I had to give up what was right for what I knew was wrong. And sometimes you have to go after some some sour deals. You have to be adamant about some no's because your survival depends on it. I'm glad that I can be sometimes in a position where I can say no to something or I can push back on something that makes me unhappy or uncomfortable. But for the most part, I think it's really about Trusting how you feel initially, but then also leaving space for yourself to go, you know, but I could be wrong. I've embarked on some stuff that I was sure was a winner and it was an absolute flop. And I've embarked on some stuff that I said, this is going to be an absolute dud, but I'll do it. Why not? I ain't got nothing else to do. Then it turns out to be a hit. And so now that means I just say, I just open myself up to it and I go, I'm going to do my part. And if they don't pick up the pace and do theirs, then I'll just keep on moving. If they come back two years from now, I'll entertain it. I'm not going to be vindictive or nasty, but I'm, I'm no longer pushing, pushing, pushing on stuff. I'll do my due diligence, but after that, that's the end of it. If you want this to come to life, you have to play your part too. I think that you have many generations of wisdom coursing throughout your brain and your body. That's only a podcast. That's only <laughs> that if you see me out in the, in the wild, you'd be like, why is he making such horrible choices? <laughs> <laughs> well, he sounds so smart on that interview. <laughs> well, we can go to a bar and have a drink and talk about your horrible choices. I would love that. <laughs> I've got a few of my own to share. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't know if I even made horrible choices. I just made choices. And I'm a huge believer in this. I believe everybody does what they believe is their absolute best in that moment. And that doesn't always mean that people see their best. It just means I did what I thought I had to do and I thought I did it the best way I could have. Mm -hmm. So I'm not too mad at myself over some bad decisions unless it was blatantly obvious. And I knew it was blatantly obvious. And in the moment I was like, you know, this is an idiot's decision. Like (laughs) There's that moment we all have where we're talking to ourselves, you know, this is not going to work. (laughs) But some stubbornness says, yeah, I know, but I got it. And I go, yeah, I know you do. I see it. It's hitting me in the face. It's blatantly obvious, (laughs) but you know what? And it's, that's, that's, that's part of this career as well. Like I had this very, very recently, I had an experience where I had to make a decision. Do I want to let one individual who I didn't know before this and won't know after this deter or determine my trajectory forward? Because I was like, this is a really amazing opportunity that I have in front of me. I don't know this person. And if I let them be the deciding factor on it, I'm going to be very upset with myself later on in life. And so I said, all right, I'm aware now. I'm going to keep my guard up. I'm going to be aware of stuff. But I'm going to still go down this road and get out of it what I can and move on. 
And I think that's another difficult thing is some people seem to be under the impression that the moment a room turns chilly or the moment an experience seems complex or complicated, get out. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, maybe not. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe stay in there, get what you need and then go. Yeah, it's sort of like the difference between discerning between actual danger and just discomfort. Right. Yes. Bingo. Discomfort and danger are different and they can switch into each other very quickly. Yeah. Which is why I said I, in that moment, I kept my ears perked and I was aware and, and trying to be attentive. But I also recognized the situation for what it was offering. And I'm like, I'd be a fool to let this stranger keep me from this glory. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So I want to talk about your creative process. I know that you are equally invested in technology and craft and blending it to amazing results. And I think we're in an era where you can really soar with this. I think both technology and craft have room to be reconsidered and revalued in deeper, more meaningful and super conscious kind of ways. I would love for you, if you wouldn't mind giving us a kind of breakdown of what your creative process looks like through maybe describing a recent project. And I know you were part of the Design Lab cohort with Hayworth and with Patricia Urquiola as the curator. And I thought that whole project was really great. And also your piece in particular, I'd love if you could talk about not just how you developed it creatively, but also how you worked the relationships through the whole process. The goal was to bring to life things that we would not be able to bring to life otherwise. And what was exciting to me was the way digital technology operates now is very much like artisan craftsmanship operated back in the day, where an artisan could make 25 different things in a day because there was no need for repetitive reproduction. A 3D printer or a CNC-operated machine today can cut 27 different curves because the machine doesn't do better or worse depending on the curve it cuts. So variety is no longer the enemy of industry. Now you can actually make it a a selling point. And so I said, I want to use some of those machines you all have. And I have this design, which was this Polaris collection, that takes the curvatures found all around us. Like if we had the vision to see electromagnetic light waves, we would see all of the waves being given off by anything that's either electronic or magnetic. It would be this beautiful kind of three-dimensional line-drawn Escher work. And I said, I want to give some sort of substance to that. And so I started playing around in the computer with different configurations, obviously trying to lean on the the electromagnetic side of it, but also lean on the archetype of coffee table, library chair, bench, a settee, a couch. Mm -hmm. And through that, I knew that whatever complex curvature I created 
the machine could sort it out. So at that point, it wasn't about me having to find things that were easy to do, but now it was things, as long as it fell within the parameters and the guidelines of the machinery, anything was possible. And so I got very excited by that. But my process typically starts, like with that collection, it starts with me uh, diving into the physics of it. I have about as many physics books as I have design books in my library. And so I needed to understand what makes electromagnetic lines or fields is what they're called, these field diagrams, what makes them happen. And once I understand what makes them happen, I can reproduce it in the computer. Once I reproduce it in the computer, I'm now speaking a language that machines and fabricators use. So I've translated it. I, I used to sketch a lot by hand until I got into the, the world of making objects that are very difficult to sketch because they might have a, a geometry that's not so simple. And so when I get to the computer, it's not only me sketching, but it's also me translating. Because now, like with that project, all I had to do was send the file. And so I sent the file to the team at Hayward. And oddly enough, no one will believe it. Although it was designed to be bent by computers, all of those curves were bent by hand. And so that added another layer to it because now it was almost this digital concept that was being created in this virtual perfect world of a computer that was then being brought to life by the skilled hands of artisans. And it was really this concept I came up with in the very beginning years of me being in Miami, which is called technocraft. And for me, technocraft is the merging of high technology and handcraft because there's something missing when something comes solely from a machine. But once a hand gets involved to lacquer it or polish it or sand it or shape it, all of a sudden there's an imperfection introduced to that perfect shell. And a soul. And then a person's, a soul, some cracks, some, some weaknesses, some flaws, all of a sudden become the strengths. And so with this project with Hayworth, I wouldn't have access to anybody who could do all that complex bending unless it was just me and I'd get tired or bored too quickly. And so that whole project was kind of me wanting to share, which is a big thing I believe in, there's a song I love. It's, a, it's an old Negro spiritual, and it's called, the, the lyric is, there's plenty good room, plenty good room, plenty good room in my father's kingdom. Just choose a seat and sit down. And I think that for me, that's been a, a, a mantra of mine. There's plenty of space for everybody. All we have to do is provide seating at the table. And so when Hayworth approached me, my immediate thought was, how can I get Brian involved? And he'll never believe it. So hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast. Uh, but I immediately thought of him. And then I immediately thought of Max. And then when they were saying they wanted to talk to any, I was like, yes, I'll talk to any. Let's get any Lee involved and Christy as well. And so it became this thing of Hayworth has more than enough money, know-how, and reach where Bradley doesn't have to be the only person involved. Let's spread this out and let's get more views. Let's get more voices. And so for me, that, that project was really about access, but then also I was finally in a position where I could give recognition to people in the same way I needed recognition in my early career. I still need recognition. That's so beautiful. And I, I think it's the cohort, it was very powerful. Everyone came with a very solid perspective. It was very diverse. The product, the output of each was very, very different. Mm -hmm but you could feel a little bit of Hayworth DNA in all of it. Exactly. But it also felt like it was 
the very experimental side of, uh, that Hayworth could be, right? And so... Well, see, no, I disagree. It, 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 that was the reason we were doing it, is there was nothing experimental about it. Ah, okay. Because that's the other difficulty that the industry faces, is anytime young designers or forward-thinking designers are tasked with a challenge, the outcome is deemed experimental. And what that does, I know people mean it in a good way, but what it ends up doing is it tells the CEOs, think about this 10, 20 years from now. Uh, you are absolutely correct. Yes. It separates it into another category. Well, it separates it into uh, Lottie D fantasy land. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was glad that we made it by hand with Hayworth, all of those pieces were made by hand. We didn't make those pieces 10 years from now. We made them today. So they're absolutely 100% feasible today. The difference is we have an industry that's convinced that the only thing that works is the thing that's already worked. And what I wanted this project to be was to show, no, 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 Brian Wooden is getting a lot of recognition for these rugs and these, these upholstered forms right now. People are excited by the bent wire work that I'm doing right now. Any Lee's cloud sofa is dreamy and romantic right now. So I want companies to see that. And I want Hayworth's companies to see that and go, oh, we could be doing this right now in addition to the things that we already know are tried and true. But right now, the industry typically has to choose for some reason. It's, just, it's self-assigned the choice of either we do tried and true or we do, quote, experimental. I want experimental to be, if I designed a couch in VR, I'd go, that's experimental. Because that's years from now before somebody will be able to enjoy a couch, a virtual reality couch. But a tangible, physical thing that just looks different and, and, and endeavors to try something out, that's here and now. So that whole project was here and now. I want crazy projects like that to not even look different. I want them to be so commonplace that people go, oh, cool. Electromagnetic field lines, great, big deal. <laughs> I wanted to, that's how I want the world to be. Obviously, a lot of companies don't agree, but I think it, I think it would be a beautiful thing. I think you're right. And I, I appreciate this discourse. I 100% agree with you. And I hadn't thought of it that way. So I really like the way you're thinking about it. And I believe that you're pushing on something that is very much where the industry needs to be pushed forward, which is that with technology and handcraft at our disposal, we don't have to rely on sameness. Exactly. And we don't have to rely so rigidly on existing archetypes. Like we won't lose our brand. If anything, we will we'll expand the brand. Yeah. The brand will reach more people. Exactly. Because now without diluting it or without losing its, its core and its essence, which is, I'm glad when you said earlier that you saw some of Hayworth in every single one of those pieces. And that was what was beautiful to have a diverse voice. In my mind, it would almost be like having different choirs sing the same song. Mm-hmm. It's all there, but you hear it done in so many different ways, but the lyrics are the same. It's Aretha Franklin doing Bridge Over Troubled Water. Simon and Garfunkel was cute and all. <laughs> <laughs> but when Aretha takes it to a place where you go, oh, I didn't even know we could do this. And you go, <laughs> right, right. That's perfect. So for me, that's it. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm Aretha Franklin. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I am. I would love to be in the same voice or the same sentence as Aretha Franklin. 
Wouldn't you? I would love to be in the same like vibratory space where yes. like, you know, rest in peace. I've loved this conversation and I'm hoping you will be game to play a little game with me. Let's do it. I probably should have asked more details before I said that, but let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you jumped in. Okay. It's just a quick word association game. I'm going to give you Six pairs of words. You're going to choose one, the fastest one that you resonate with. And then at the end, we're going to take the six words that you chose and create a quick psychoanalysis of you. Nice. Great. (laughs) Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Buffet or menu? Menu. Secrets or weapons? Secrets. Climb or slide? Slide. Data? or mystery? Data. Variable or impressionable? Variable. Aroma or pixel? Aroma. Okay, let's let's unpack this, shall we? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me what you why you chose menu over buffet. I think I like the way the word sounds more. Ah. I see it as a, a willingness to commit versus needing to keep your options open. Oh, okay. I think I, I thought you just meant like in that moment, why did I choose it? No, with menu, I think you're, you have someone's vision. There was thoughtfulness to it. Buffet, I'm thinking sneezing. I'm thinking hair is falling on stuff. <laughs> Getting dried and crusted over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's green beans in the mashed potatoes. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. Between secrets and weapons, what are you feeling there? I think one is malicious and premeditated and the other is just human. Secrets is just human weaponizing something. That's me thinking that people would have secrets that they would want to use against you. That would be something that seems intentionally malicious. So a secret in itself isn't malicious unless it's weaponized. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Climb or slide. You chose slide. Slide because you get to take, you, you get to have the joy of the work you did. You get the momentum of movement on that's not under your own effort. Well, for me, it was, if I'm sliding down something, that means I had to have climbed up it already. Oh, of course. That's beautiful. Okay. You chose data over mystery. Given the amount of mathematics I deal with on a regular basis, data is still mysterious and still befuddling. Honestly, sometimes it's more befuddling. You go, I have so much information now. I don't know how we possibly could have arrived at that outcome. So you get both. You get the... um clue and the mystery. Yeah, the clue makes it even more mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, why variable over impressionable? I mean, for me, vari- life is nothing but a, a bunch of variables. If I lean one way or another, that determines the next move and the next move and the next move. And so variable almost just immediately jumps out. You could have said any other word next to variable, and I probably still would have picked variable. Oh, okay. You're that, that big of a fan. Okay. Oh, I love You chose aroma over pixel. And aroma is just so, again, it's similar to variable. I would have chosen that over almost anything. An aroma is immediately an entire story. Just the word aroma is a story. And when someone says aroma, you already have a vision of something happening. And so for me, it's this interlinking of things. And pixel is this individual thing. Obviously, when they amass together, a pixel can form an image or a pixel can create some sort of thing or an impression or an idea of a thing. But the aroma is the group. It's the totality of it all. But even beyond itself. Right. 
And I feel like a pixel is a building block, but an aroma is the whole story, like you said, but it's also sensual and Mm -hmm. memorable. Whereas a pixel, since it doesn't have that story behind it yet, I mean, unless it's part of a larger group, is unmemorable. It's dust. Right. Okay, so you're interested in vision in a very beneficial, benign kind of way. You're not interested in malicious, any sort of aggressive attack type of behavior. You enjoy the climb because you know there's a fun slide at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And data is nothing but clues to a larger mystery. You move through life understanding that every step you take is a variable that impacts the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And all of the things that hit your senses, like an aroma, come with their own stories attached to them. So there's so much to interpret in any given moment. Bingo. I agree. We got you. We did it. (laughs) We we solved it. (laughs) Bradley, you are an absolute delight and a talent and a sage. And this has been so wonderful. Thank you so very much. I truly have enjoyed it. I love talking about this, this crazy profession, this psychotic career. I love it. I love it. I love it. And if I can in any way give somebody the little bit of courage or boost to stay the course, then then job well done. I'm, I'm on board for it. So thank you for having me. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Bradley, including images of his work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you like Clever, there are a number of ways you can support us. Share Clever with your friends, leave us a five-star rating or a kind review, support our sponsors, or hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter, or X. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Mark Zerowinski, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows. Gosh, I love you. You're going to milk this thing dry.